Section 27 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 8, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Catherine of Braganza, Chapter 2, Part 4. There was one point on which a close confidence and a sympathy of opinion, little suspected by the world, subsisted between Charles and Catherine. This was on the subject of religion. Charles, although the companion of scoffers, and openly applauding the profane language, the ribald jests of Buckingham, Rochester, and all the godless crew, male and female, by whom he was surrounded, was secretly impressed with respect for the principles of his queen. Bigoted and narrow-minded as Catherine undoubtedly was, and in practice superstitious overmuch, there was an atmosphere of holiness about her, a purity and innocence in her conversation, and an integrity in her conduct, which showed that all she did was from motives of conscience and as matters of duty. Charles had received from his mother, in the tender season of infancy, the first and only impressions of a religious nature that were ever made on him. Those impressions, without producing any of the fruits of Christian conviction, piety, and purity of life, gave him a strong bias in favor of Catholicism, which haunted him to the tomb. He struggled against it, for it militated no less against his self-indulgence and habitual love of ease than his interest, and succeeded in deceiving the world into the idea that he was an infidel. His brother was for a time deterred by his persuasions and commands from avowing his conversion to the Romish creed, but Charles, though he on one occasion, lamented with tears that he could not enjoy his religion, did not love it sufficiently to make the slightest self-sacrifice to prove his sincerity. It was in reality merely a matter of opinion with him and not of faith. The queen kept up a correspondence with Rome, and this served to cover the clandestine intercourse of others, though the suspicions it created were most assuredly the cause of her name being subsequently implicated in the accusations connected with the popish plot. The re-establishment of the Roman Catholic worship in England was one of the leading articles of the secret treaty, which was negotiated by Henrietta, Duchess of Orléans, between Louis the Fourteenth and Charles the Second. After a long correspondence, that princess came to Dover for the purpose of concluding it. Charles and Catherine met her there, and the deep state intrigues that were discussed between the royal brother and sister were veiled beneath a succession of feats and rejoicings, which took place in honor of her arrival. It was the first time Catherine and this princess had met, and when the latter returned to France, she spoke in the most friendly manner of her royal sister-in-law. She told her cousin, Mademoiselle de Montpensier, that the queen was a thoroughly good woman, not beautiful, but virtuous and full of piety, and that she commanded the respect of everyone. This friendly testimony to the merits of Catherine was borne by the best-loved sister of her lord, almost with her dying breath, for in three weeks after her return to France, this beautiful young princess expired after a few hours of agonizing illness. The ratification of this secret treaty placed Charles in the degrading position of a pensioner of France. Louis the Fourteenth had previously bribed the wives and mistresses of such of his ministers as had declined receiving money or jewels with their own hands, and the dispatches of Rovigny and Barleon contained sufficient evidence of monies paid by that sovereign to Algernon Sidney and others of the Republican Party, who, under the pretense of patriotism, 
were the hireling tools of a foreign power to stir up civil strife in their own country charles the second was aware of the corruption of friend and foe and with a laxity of principle scarcely more disgraceful preferred a peaceful appropriation of the gold of france to his own use to its being lavished on his subjects in the shape of bribes for his injury his extravagance rendered him needy and his indolence inclined him to avail himself of supplies that cost no sufferings to his people the cruel imposts of cromwell's government had afforded the precedent of collecting an enormous revenue by taxing articles of general consumption but a revenue torn from the necessities of the people could never have been collected without the aid of military despotism charles liked better to draw on the exchequer of his wealthier neighbour of france there were times when the spirit of a british monarch stirred within him and he would fain have broken from the chains but louis threatened to publish the secret correspondence with a plain statement of the transactions that had taken place between them and rather than endure the disgraceful exposure charles submitted to follow the line of policy dictated by him implicitly a few weeks after the death of the duchess of orleans charles the second sent out a yacht with a confidential person to bring to england the beautiful mademoiselle de Carouel, whom he had seen in attendance on her when at dover she came and he compelled queen catherine out of respect as it was pretended for his sister's memory to receive her into the number of her maids of honour she soon became the acknowledged mistress of charles and was the most troublesome of the unprincipled intrigants of that reign and one of the most extravagant there was a great ball on the ninth of february sixteen seventy one at the theatre in whitehall palace in which the queen and all the ladies of the court danced the greatest fault of catherine of berganza observed sir walter scott was her being educated a catholic her greatest misfortune bearing the king no children and her greatest foible an excessive love of dancing it might have occurred to the good people of those times that loving a ball was not a capital sin even in a person whose figure excluded her from all hopes of gracing it that a princess of portugal must be a catholic if she had any religion at all and that children here we take leave to finish the sentence in the words of holy writ are a gift and heritage that cometh of the lord yet these obvious considerations did not prevent her from being assailed with the most scurious lampoons on every occasion how a man making pretenses to high moral feeling and sanctity like andrew marvel could have found it in his heart to address lines like the following to so amiable and unoffending a princess it is difficult to imagine reform great queen the errors of your youth and hear a thing you never heard called truth poor private balls content the fairy queen you must dance and dance damnably to be seen ill-natured little goblin and designed for nothing but to dance and vex mankind what wiser thing could our great monarch do than root ambition out by showing you you can the most aspiring thoughts pull down for who would have his wife to have his crown our pious bard brings his coarse series of personal insults on his royal mistress to this climax in conclusion what will be next unless you please to go and dance among your fellow fiends below there as upon the stygian lake you float you may o'erset and sink the laden boat while we the funeral rites devoutly pay and dance for joy that you are danced away 
as a further instance of the unprovoked malice of andrew marvel against poor catherine is the injurious manner in which her name is needlessly dragged by him into another of his pasquinades on the impunity with which the duke of monmouth and his guilty associates appeared at court after their barbarous murder of the unfortunate parish beadle on the night of february twenty eighth sixteen seventy one in a drunken frolic there was to have been a grand ball the same night at the palace which was prevented in consequence of the confusion and horror caused by the news of this outrage which gave occasion for the following observation see what mishaps dare e'en invade whitehall the silly fellow's death put off the ball and disappoints the queen poor little chuck who doubtless would have danced it like a duck yet shall whitehall the innocent the good see these men dance all daubed with lace and blood the severest castigation which satire could inflict had been richly deserved by monmouth but what had the ill-treated wife of his profligate father done that her name should be mixed up with his crimes the failings of catherine of berganza and there are fewer recorded of her than of many a princess who bears a brighter name in the historic page appear at all times to have proceeded from want of judgment rather than from a wilful desire to act amiss they certainly were not of the class that could warrant any one in chastising her with scorpions in the shape of ribald rhymes evelyn was certainly greatly annoyed with her on one occasion but there her offence only amounted to a want of taste in the fine arts and a deficiency of that generous patronage of which the princes of the royal house of stuart afforded so noble an example evelyn it seems was deeply interested in the success of grinling gibbon afterwards so celebrated for his exquisite carving in wood whom he had by accident discovered by looking through the window of a poor solitary thatched house in the fields near say's court and seeing him engaged in carving the large cartoon or crucifix of tintoret containing more than one hundred figures exquisitely executed with a frame wrought in festoons of flowers the most delicate and lovely that could be imagined evelyn asked if he might enter the artist civilly opened the door and permitted him to examine the work which that accomplished virtuoso considered more beautiful than anything of the kind he had seen in all his travels he asked the price which was one hundred pounds evelyn considered the frame alone well worth the money and the next time he saw the king he mentioned the young artist and the manner in which he had found him out and begged his majesty would allow him to bring his work to whitehall charles graciously replied that he would himself go and see the artist but probably thought no more of it till the first of march when evelyn told him that gibbon and his work had both arrived at whitehall and were in sir richard brown's chamber and if his majesty would appoint any place whither it should be brought he would take care of it no says the king show me the way i'll go to sir richard's chamber which he immediately did continues evelyn walking along the entries after me as far as the ewry till he came up into the room no sooner was he entered and he cast his eye on the work than he was astonished at the curiosity of it and having considered it a long time and discoursed with mr gibbon whom i brought to kiss his hand he commanded that it should be immediately carried to the queen's side to show her 
it was carried up into her bedchamber where she and the king looked on and admired it again the king being called away left us with the queen believing she would have bought it it being a crucifix but when his majesty was gone a french peddling woman one madame de bord who used to bring petticoats and fans and baubles out of france to the ladies began to find fault with several things in the work which she understood no more than a monkey so in a kind of indignation i caused the person who brought it to carry it back to the chamber finding the queen so much governed by an ignorant french woman and this incomparable artist had his labor only for his pains which not a little displeased me and was fain to send it down to his cottage again where he sold it for eighty pounds though well worth one hundred pounds without the frame how much more there is in the manner of doing a thing than in the thing itself the king was the person for whose inspection the carving was brought to whitehall not without hope on both the part of the artist and his friend that he would be the purchaser charles was in pecuniary straits at that time for he was almost without linen he had only three cravats in the world very few stockings and no credit at the linen drapers to procure more of these absolute necessaries consequently he could not readily command the money to buy gibbon's carving but he gratified the pride of the artist by extolling it and shifted the expectation of purchasing from himself to his wife he adroitly causes it to be carried to her apartment whither he conducts evelyn and the artist and leaves them with her for her to settle the matter her own way catherine's income was unpunctually paid and she was probably as much at a loss for an extra hundred pounds as his majesty the women who are about her have reason to know it and one of them comes to her aid by deprecating the work and this affords an excuse for not buying it catherine not being skilled in the delicate art of declining an inconvenient purpose with a compliment is regarded as a person destitute of taste and liberality and gets chronicled by the wisest man of the age as a simpleton while charles escapes uncensured it is however to be regretted that no traits of her generosity or encouragement of literature or the fine arts have been recorded charles the second with all his follies and all his sins was so frank and gracious in his manners and so perfect in all the minor arts which form an important part of king craft that he won the hearts of all who came into the sphere of his fascinations he seldom resented the sarcasms with which he was occasionally assailed because he possessed more wit than those who satirized him and generally retorted with a repartee the earl of rochester one day took the liberty of writing the following impromptu epigram on his majesty's chamber door here lies our sovereign lord the king whose word no man relies on who never said a foolish thing and never did a wise one it is very true replied charles after he had read the lines my doings are those of my ministers but my sayings are my own addison has given a pleasant account in one of the papers of the spectator of the good humor with which his majesty yielded to the lord mayor's over affectionate request for him to come back and finish the carouse when he had been feasting with his loving citizens in the mansion house certain it is that he knew how to be everything to every man the king came to me in the queen's withdrawing-room from the circle of ladies to talk with me as to what advance i had made in the dutch history says evelyn 
and who can wonder that he loves him and passes lightly over his faults startling as they must have been to so pure a moralist he easily induced the king to employ gibbon for the decorations in the new buildings at windsor i had a fair opportunity of talking to his majesty about it pursues he in the lobby next the queen's side where i presented him with some sheets of my history i thence walked with him through st james's park to the garden where i both saw and heard a familiar discourse between blank, his majesty of course and mrs nelly an impudent comedian she looked out of her garden on a terrace at the top of the wall and blank, his majesty standing on the green walk under it i was heartily sorry at this scene thence the king walked to the duchess of cleveland another lady of pleasure and curse of our nation from an entry in a loose sheet of the salaries paid to the ladies and officers of queen catherine's household while sir thomas strickland was the keeper of the privy purse we find that thirty-six pounds a year was dispersed to her majesty's parrot keeper a large sum in comparison to the ridiculously low salaries of the fair and noble damsels who attended on her in the capacity of maids of honour who received but ten pounds per annum each and the mother of the maids twenty it is scarcely credible that any gentlewoman could have been found to undertake such a charge as the superintendence of maids of honour to the queen of charles the second for so paltry a remuneration a few items of the payments in the royal household list of catherine of Braganza from this sheet may be amusing to some of our readers as illustrating the increased amount of the salaries in the present times but the difference of the queen consort's revenue the relative value of money and above all the manner in which she was too often left in arrear by the crown must be taken into the calculation also the enormous amount of fees and perquisites attached to every office in the court in those days according to this account then catherine's lord chamberlain received a yearly salary of one hundred and sixty pounds her master of the horse fifty pounds her secretary the same only fourteen pounds more than that important functionary her parrot keeper her cup-bearers two in number had thirty-three pounds yearly her carvers the same her eight grooms of the privy chamber had each sixty pounds her apothecaries twelve in number fifty pounds her surgeon the same hugh aston clerk thirty-seven pounds edward hill brusher thirty pounds a lady of her majesty's robes for her entertainment three hundred pounds maids of honour being six in number apiece ten pounds chamberers eight in number fifty pounds keeper of her majesty's sweet coffers twenty-six pounds her laundresses are rated much higher so are her starchers her musicians or mushiners according to honest tom shepherd's orthography were the best off of all for twelve of them were paid one hundred and twenty pounds apiece and the master of the music for himself and eight boys is allowed four hundred and forty pounds per annum her tailor is paid a yearly salary of sixty pounds and the shoemaker thirty-six pounds the cook thirty pounds the master of her majesty's games fifty pounds the hunting establishment of catherine of braganza savors of that of a queen of england in the days of the plantagenet and tudor sovereigns for there is the master of her majesty's bows with a salary of sixty-one pounds attached to his office a yeoman of her majesty's bows and a groom of her majesty's bows a master of her majesty's bucks 
who receives fifty pounds per annum and two yeomen of her harriers at twenty-five pounds each her clock-keeper's wages are forty-five pounds yearly the countess of penalva figures in this list as madame nurse with a yearly pension of one hundred and twenty pounds four foreign ladies in queen catherine's service are quaintly designated by tom shepherd as four other of the madames at sixty pounds there are also some brief statements relative to her majesty's income and the sums due to her from the exchequer and from fines etc which together with the amount received makes up precisely the revenue of thirty thousand pounds per annum secured to her by her marriage articles while the queen mother henrietta maria lived catherine's income was paid with difficulty by a necessitous government burdened with the maintenance of two queens and even at the death of that princess the queen consort's case was not at first improved as from lord arlington's statements it appears that two years of henrietta's income after her death was mortgaged to pay her debts after which time the whole was to revert to catherine queen catherine was present at the death of her sister-in-law anne hyde duchess of york she came to see her as soon as she heard of the sudden fatal turn her sickness had taken and remained with her till she died she was present when blandford bishop of oxford visited the duchess and burnet who never omits an opportunity of attacking catherine pretends that the bishop intended to administer the sacrament and read the service for the sick to the duchess of york but when he saw the queen sitting by her bedside his modesty deterred him from reading prayers which would probably have driven her majesty out of the room but that not being done she pretending kindness would not leave her now it is certain that the bishop after the conversation he had just had with the duke of york in the drawing-room had no such intention the duchess had charged her husband to inform blandford or any other bishop who might come to speak to her that she was reconciled to the church of rome and had accordingly received its sacraments but if when so told they still insisted on seeing her they might come in provided they did not disturb her with controversy the duke repeated this to dr blandford with further particulars who replied that he made no doubt she would do well as she had not been influenced by worldly motives and afterwards went into the room and made her a short christian exhortation and so departed queen catherine according to burnett remained while the bishop delivered this exhortation and never left the bedside till the duchess breathed her last but james the second takes no notice of this nor does he mention her visit to his dying consort a few months previously to this event there had been a coolness between queen catherine and the duke of york which had manifested itself on the following occasion the duke of york had asked as a favor of the king that his regiment of guards might not lose its rank when the cold stream on the death of monk was given to lord craven and called the queen's troop the king gave him his word that it should not but the queen who james says was not of herself very kind to him was induced by some about her who were very glad to put any underhand mortification on him to ask the king that her troop of guards might have the rank next to his majesty's guards she and others who had perhaps more influence than herself pressed the king so hard on this point that he was a little embarrassed between their solicitations and the promise he had given his brother when this was told to james he came to the king and said 
he saw that his majesty was teased by the women and others on that account and though he must consider it a hardship he would voluntarily release him from his promise for whatever others did he was resolved never to make him uneasy for any concern of his it was in consequence settled that the queen's guards should be called the second troop of guards with precedency over the duke's regiment an arrangement only consistent with her rank as queen consort a point she appears to have contested with all the stiffness which her portuguese and spanish descent was likely to inspire in a matter of etiquette like all very proud persons catherine of braganza occasionally committed herself by a more than ordinary departure from the stately ceremonies by which her movements were generally regulated it was however only when her spirits were excited in the quest of amusement that she forgot the stiffness of the infanta and the dignity of the queen the most notable of her frolics occurred towards the end of september sixteen seventy one when the court was at audley end the palatial residence of the earl and countess of suffolk where she and the king were entertained for several days with great magnificence while there her majesty francis duchess of richmond and the duchess of buckingham took into their heads to go incognito to the fair which was held at the neighboring town of saffron walden they arrayed themselves for this foolish expedition in short red petticoats with waistcoats and other articles of which they imagined to be the costume of country lasses and in this disguise set forth the queen mounted on a sorry cart jade rode on a pillion behind the brave old cavalier sir bernard gasquinet the duchess of richmond behind mr roper and the duchess of buckingham behind another gentleman of the court but they had also overdone their disguises in consequence we may presume of copying the representations of peasants at the theatres and court masks instead of taking their models from reality that they looked more like antics than rustics and the country people as soon as they entered the fair began to follow them in expectation no doubt that they were a strolling company of comedians who were about to contribute to their amusement by their droll performances but the queen going into a booth to buy a pair of yellow stockings for her sweetheart and sir bernard asking for a pair of gloves stitched with blue for his sweetheart they were soon found out says our author by their gibberish to be strangers meaning foreigners doubtless the queen's portuguese and sir bernard gasquinet's italian attempts at imitating what they supposed to be the manners and language of essex and suffolk peasants at a fair must have had an irresistibly ludicrous effect independently of the queer dress and appearance of the party the queen and the duchess of buckingham were both little dumpy women her majesty with her dark hair olive complexion and large black eyes might perhaps have borne some likeness in her short red petticoat to a foreign gypsy but then the graceful figure and fair face of frances duchess of richmond she who as la belle stuart had been the star of the court must ill have sorted with such a gabardine the mystery was however presently unravelled a person in the crowd who had seen the queen at a public state dinner recognized her and was proud of proclaiming his knowledge this soon brought all the fair in crowds to stare at the queen the court party finding themselves discovered got to their horses as fast as the eager throng of gazers who pressed to see her majesty would permit but as many of the country people as had horses straight away mounted with their wives or sweethearts behind them to get as much gape as they could 
and so attended the queen and her company to the gates of audley end greatly to her confusion it would have made an agreeable sequel to this pleasant tale if pepys or evelyn had been there to record the sayings of the merry monarch and his good-for-nothing witty premier buckingham when they saw their luckless wives return in such unwonted disguise at the head of the rabble rout by which they had been detected in their vain attempt to personate wenches of a low degree it was well for queen catherine that her cavalier was an ancient gentleman a knight sans puer et sans reproche respected in the court and personally endeared to the king by his sufferings and perils in the royal cause the duchess of buckingham was the daughter of fairfax and bred in all the strictness of the puritan school yet both she and the catholic queen enjoyed a harmless frolic no less than the beautiful madcap francis stuart who was the soul of whim and fun and most probably had led those discreet matrons into this scrape charles must have been pretty well convinced by this adventure that there were small hopes of persuading catherine to take the veil their majesties left audley end the next day for euston hall the seat of the earl of arlington charles's lord chamberlain and from thence went in progress to norwich the king queen catherine with all her ladies the dukes of york monmouth and buckingham and many other nobles entered that city on thursday september twenty eighth their majesties were met at Trose bridge the utmost limits of the city by the mayor and the corporation in their robes with the civic regalia and the militia newly clothed in red and by them conducted to the duke's palace as the mansion of the representative of the house of howard was still called though there had been no duke of norfolk for a century lord henry howard the great-grandson of the unfortunate ducal peer who was beheaded by queen elizabeth received king charles the second and queen catherine as his guests in this palace where he entertained them with great magnificence the next day the king went to the cathedral where he was sung in with an anthem and when he had ended his devotion at the east end where he kneeled on the hard stone he went to the bishop's palace and was there nobly entertained and returning through the cathedral took coach at the west door came up to the guild hall in the market-place and there showed himself to the people from the balcony and viewed the trained bands drawn up in the market-place whence he rode to the new hall as st andrew's hall was then called when he and the queen with the ladies and nobles in attendance were feasted by the city and the expenses were stated to amount to nine hundred pounds those two loyal norfolk knights sir john hobart of blickling and sir robert paston performed a futile service on this occasion by placing the first dishes on the table before his majesty charles was earnest to have knighted the mayor at this beast who as earnestly begged to be excused his majesty however conferred that honour on that deserving physician sir thomas brown the author of religio medici one of the most learned and accomplished men of norwich End of section twenty seven